0: Yes, welcome back to the Lars Resort, which remains a podcast with me, Lars Hewitton, brought to you by BettsOn. Um, w- what a weekend that was. It's a little while ago now, but it is it is still fresh in the memory, certainly fresh in my memory. Uh, a huge number of goals, the highest number of goals ever in a, a Premier League game week, so I read, so, so, so lively. Been a good year. For for attacking teams and goals and things, more so than defenses. I, I read that the, um, the average number of goals per game in the Premier League is up to 3.20 this season, up from 2.85 or some such last season. So, lots of goals, which is fun. We like that. Um, gotta start with Arsenal, I think. Yeah, I think we need to tip our hat to Arsenal, who were really, really good against Liverpool. Like, we're, It's Thursday now. You'll have heard all your regular podcasts talk about this. So I'm just going to add to the sort of choir of people saying, wow, that was really good. Um, certainly their best performance this season, I thought. Possibly their best performance under Mikel Arteta. One of them, right up there anyway. Um, they, looked, uh, they looked very aggressive, uh, I, I thought they had a good tempo to what they were doing. You know, we have seen this season that Arsenal have kind of been lowering the tempo a little bit, maybe playing a little bit safer than they did at times last season to control games a little bit more. Arteta spoke about this. He said he didn't like the the word control so much. He wants to dominate. Is is uh, that's fair enough? But I thought in this game against Liverpool there was much a higher tempo to everything they did and much more aggression and 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 that was tremendous. Like the midfield a lot. Uh, with Jorginho next to Rice, I feel like that frees up Martin Odegaard to do more Martin Odegaard things. And as much as I was I was hyped for this sort of sexy dual eight thing with Martin Odegaard and Kai Havertz both having pretty free roles and and zo- zooming around. I like the idea of that I'm not sure it actually works that well in practice. And, of course, also, having Jorginho next to Declan Rice does free up Rice a little bit more as well, knowing that Jorginho's there. And, obviously, Jorginho can't play every week, probably. so He's had physical issues. We know that now. But he definitely adds a lot of balance to that midfield. So we like that a lot. And it's something that we mentioned on the pod not that long ago that we kind of wanted to see. What we also mentioned that we might want to see Kai Havertz up front, kind of good. Well, I mean, obviously, the f- not a, not a clinical finisher, maybe, but he does a lot of useful things. You know, he moves around, he wins a lot of physical battles. He is, I've said this before, it's because he looks a bit dopey and a lot of the times, like his eyes are half closed and he, he can look like a guy who who's almost half asleep. But he wins a lot of physical battles. Does Kai Havertz, and he moves around a lot, and he's got he's quite skillful, so he can he can take care of the ball. Yeah, I, I I thought him up front, yeah, that, that looked pretty good to me. He could, could obviously be a bit more clinical in front of goal. But, um, yeah, I maybe that's something that's worth doing more often. I definitely think that Jorginho Rice behind Erdogan, freeing Erdogan up to, to do his things with Havertz up front. Yeah, quite like it, quite like it. Also a very good game by, by Martinelli, I thought. Which brings us to, we had a Martinelli chat on one of the recent episodes... And we got a comment uh, from Dave Mitchell at Dodgy Tat Dave on Twitter. Dave, of course, I mean, if there's a hierarchy, I I don't really think there's such a thing as a hierarchy of listeners. You know, I'm, I'm enthusiastic and grateful for all of you listening to this but if there's a kind of inner sanctum of, of, of listeners who listen to a lot and comment and and write write in like Dave is right there at like the high table of Lars resort uh, listeners if there's like a VIP lounge at the resort I'd say Dave is in there for sure so he wrote on Martinelli that uh, I have a martinelli theory. Uh, We, by which he means Arsenal, I suppose, pivoted towards control a bit more this year. We're more solid, but we're also a bit methodical with our attacks. If you picture a Martinelli goal or assist, it's probably in transition and he's running at an isolated backpedaling fullback. This season, he's being faced up by organised defences a lot more. And he's beating his full-back, but he's then being blocked off by covering centre-halves. He's got amazing pace, aggression and directness, but he can lack a little guile and finesse, says Dave Bart Martinelli. And I reckon that's spot-on. And I don't think it's a coincidence then that in this slightly wilder game against Liverpool over Arsenal, I think they upped the tempo. And also Liverpool accommodated by, you know, they are quite an attacking team. And, and I think uh, a sort of ha- not fully fit Trent Alexander-Arnold is the kind of opponent that Martinelli would probably like to play against most weeks um, he had a better time he, he had those opportunities to run on the counter more often it's probably not a coincidence good, good shout by, by Dave and probably not a coincidence that uh, we saw a good Martinelli uh, performance here so uh, big boy game by Arsenal I've written in my notes big boy game by Arsenal looked like a team uh, potentially ready to challenge but, of course, the caveat when we say that is the Death Star is starting to look fully armed and operational here. <laughs> if we look if we look at Man City's uh, treble winning side of last season, who were their most important players? Who were the three most important players in this team? I would argue John Stones because of his unusual sort of hybrid role that kind of unlocked that team tactically. I would argue Kevin De Bruyne because he's Kevin De Bruyne. And then, of course, Alan Holland up front. Now those three have yet to start a game together this season. Like not once have City have it, all three available at the same time. Um, there's been injuries and, and stuff, but we're now seeing them starting to come back fit. You know, De Bruyne and Holland starting against uh, Brentford, and, and Stones is on the bench. You know, he's he's getting close. So we also know that City tend to have more of a wobble in the autumn. Uh, under Guardiola then the end of the spring, when it comes to the springtime, he's kind of found the team and they tend to go off on these sort of mad winning runs. We know that there were big changes last summer with Gundogan and Mahrez leaving. So, so obviously you have this sort of natural period of instability. Some guys have left, so important guys have been injured. And where are City now? After that period, when they were clearly a lot more vulnerable than usual? Oh look! They're two points off the top of the league with a game in hand. So that's not very encouraging for the rest. Even with quite a lot of things going against them in the first half of the season. They're like right there. They haven't dropped that many points. Uh, so City are pretty huge favourites to win the title now. Uh, if we check the odds at Betzon, uh we see that City are now one sixty to win the league. Liverpool are 3.25, Arsenal are 7.50. So if you're an Arsenal fan and you're riding high on that result and you are now fully convinced that your team is right in the title fight i would say you know 750 on them to win the league has got to be a pretty big price if you you honestly think that that's a thing that can happen personally i am disinclined uh, to go against manchester city in any kind of capacity right now i worry i worry that we're in that sort of bit in, uh, in the in the first Star Wars film, where the, the the Death Star is kind of rounding the moon, and and uh, and and the the base at Yavin is is going to be in sight pretty soon, and and the the the, the, the laser is getting warmed up, and uh, unfortunately, I mean, will will there be X wings there to, to to shoot them down? Not fully convinced, but I mean, I, I, in terms of just hoping for excitement, I guess that's what we're. Uh, we're hoping it's going to happen. It's going to be. I think it's going to be more like Rogue One, actually. I think the, the league is probably more Scarif than Yavin, if if, if that makes sense. Bad news for uh, Diego Luna. Anyway, um, Liverpool. What about Liverpool in this game? Um, I mean, they, they were not that good. They uh, <laughs> good. Liverpool not that good. Tremendous analysis, but I just kind of thought they missed uh, Soboslai a lot. And they missed a fully fit Darwin Nunez. I mean, I know he came on, but. Uh, when you take Sabah and Nunez out of that team you reduce the sort of athletic capacity of the team by quite a lot Um, and then the team they made a lot of weird mistakes throughout uh, the Martinelli goal obviously was very weird, but there were a lot of sort of strange little sort of misplaced passes and stuff. I, I thought they were just generally a little bit off it in, in this game. And when Arsenal were just really, really good, obviously that's not good. Uh, I would say that the game was an example of why Darwin's so important. Like You can laugh at him missing chances and him sort of galloping around and having this sort of crazy anarchic energy to him. But in terms of what he brings off the ball, his ability to chase and, and impress people, and his ability to just make things happen through his industry, through his tenacity, even if it doesn't always look elegant and it doesn't always come off, I thought they missed him a lot this weekend. And maybe if Mohamed Salah's there, then he can rescue you by doing something brilliant, but of course he wasn't there. And, and if you look at the midfield... I think it's pretty clear if you remember last summer how they were looking at this. They wanted, they brought they, well, Zoboslai and McAllister in, and they wanted a physical guy in addition to those two. You know, Caicedo was the first choice. They looked at Lavia as well, ended up getting Endo as a kind of emergency solution. And the midfield has just kind of been ticking along without that sort of top-class destroyer in there. And I think part of the reason why that's worked is that Soboslav is proving tougher physically than maybe some people, and by some people I mean me, and also other people, uh, thought that he would be. I've been very, very impressed with how he's coped with the physicality, how much ground he covers. McAllister has done fine as as a number six. Not an amazing ball winner, but he, he does okay. But I did think it was clear that with sabas out and Endo not available, and you're playing against the top-class midfield who are moving the ball around really, really well and playing at a high tempo, the midfield you were left with, with uh, with Garvinberg, with um, McAllister, and with uh, kurtz Jones, just looked a little bit thin. Uh, I, I thought they lacked someone with a bit of bit more physicality and aggression in there to just kick someone and just stop judging you p- 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 pinging the ball around, and you needed to interrupt that flow, and you just couldn't do it. Uh, They'll be hoping, obviously, Soboslai and Salah are back soon. uh, But they're also not playing Arsenal every week, Liverpool. Uh, They're not going to face a position this strong very often. I mean, in fact, their next four games in the league are Burnley, Brentford-Luton and Nottingham Forest which I think would be perfectly fine with that midfield. I think it's just when they came up against the top, top top-class opponent, it was a little bit thin. Then, of course, on the 10th of March, they've got Manchester City, which is uh, probably the game of the season, I guess. Um, What else is there? Oh, there's Chelsea. Chelsea. Are Chelsea cursed? I've written in my notes from last weekend. Just kind of looking at the Wolves game. They scored a nice early goal, and they come from, okay, finally, some, it's, it's going to have a nice sort of problem-free win for Chelsea. And then you concede two goals, both from deflections, which is like, of course, because nothing can go right for Chelsea this season. Absolutely nothing. Now, Pedro Neto was very good. Uh, Tiago Silva is looking very old. Uh, probably shouldn't play in a back four at all at this point. I think if you, if you want Tiago Silva in your team for the leadership and... You know, for his general presence, I think it needs to be in the back three where he has kind of younger legs either side of him. He gets isolated too often playing in a four. So then you get a situation where you have a team that's low on confidence, just demoralized. Uh, They got a very old man in defense. You have to push up looking for goals. And you've got Mateus Cunha and Pedro Neto who are like two of the best dribblers in the league running out. That's not a good scenario for the team to be in uh, at at all. Uh, It was actually Chelsea's first home defeat since October, but I have heard several people who were there say that it was noticeable that the fans seemed to turn in a big way on, on Pochettino in a way that they haven't really done before. Players were seen arguing. Fans were chanting for Mourinho, which is incredibly funny. Like, I mean, I would love that. Please, Todd Bowley, like, come on, do us all a favor and fire Pochettino and bring Mourinho back to Stamford Bridge to deal with all these young players. That would be amazing. It would be the funniest car crash. And I mean, car crashes typically not funny because people die and get maimed and stuff. Car crashes are very serious things. This would be very funny. This would be like. Clown cars on autopilot, just banging into each other. That would be incredibly funny. Please, Todd Bowley, like I, I, the great disruptor, who has so far mostly disrupted the thing he bought. But if you wanna if you want to show disruption, so much things, so many things will be disrupted if you bring Mourinho in, 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 into Chelsea. It would be hilarious. Please let it happen now. We've spoken about this so many times this season. I'm not going to go over it again. Too many young players, not enough leadership in the team. The one leader they do have is about 50 years old and can't run anymore. Listen... I still think if they had just one decent goal scorer up front, they'd probably be fine. Uh, Their XG difference is almost the same as Aston Villa's. And I think we can agree that Aston Villa have had a reasonable season. You know, the XG has Chelsea now 5th, close to 4th, which would be acceptable given how young the squad is and it's all been very recently assembled. But of course, for all the money they've spent, they have left themselves short in a very, very key area, uh, i.e., Up front. But having said all that, they were then a lot better against Aston Villa this midweek. And I've definitely said this before, but. All the criticism of Chelsea is fine. Like The squad is a mishmash. Too many young players. Owners don't understand the sport. No no striker there. The goalkeeper isn't great. None of them really. None of the goalkeeping options are very convincing. Um, Too too many central defenders in there. One of them who has to play is very old. Like All these things that we've been talking about all season. I think they're going to have some really bad FFP problems coming their way as well. But... If they had just one good striker, I think they'd be kind of fine. And the other thing is that some of these players, they're very good. I keep saying it. I am going to keep saying it. This is a hill I am actually prepared to, if not die on, then be seriously maimed on. Um, Some of these players are so talented. And we tend to live in the moment as football fans. but, But if you take some of the most promising young players around and stick them and create a very dysfunctional team, they don't become bad overnight. They might underperform and struggle to show what they can do. And if it goes on for too long, it definitely will harm their development. That is true. But there's still so much talent in the squad. And I think you saw a little bit of what they can do against Aston Villa this midweek. I don't think it's eminently possible that Chelsea just sign a really good striker this summer and next season they're fine. Uh, I, I I think it could be that simple. Elsewhere, I mean... Signing that good striker might not be that simple because of the FFP situation. They might have to, might have to sacrifice some of their homegrown uh, lambs here. Um, and, and Connor Gallagher to Tottenham? Anyone? I think Ange would like him very much. I mean, it's a bad player for them to, to lose, but they need to, raise some, need to raise some money. They need to sell someone homegrown for accounting purposes. Uh, Levi Colwell, maybe, since they just have so many center halves? I don't know. Anyway, United were good. Manchester United were good. Uh, West Ham not so good. But uh, Hölund, speaking of strikers, Osmus Hölund scoring in four games in a row, starting to look an awful lot like Man United. Finally have a decent number nine. Uh, We mentioned him briefly in our chat with the esteemed Mr Carlson. Uh, It's been slow for him in terms of goal scoring, but his movement's been good. He has that good mix of strength and speed. He does seem a little bit happier playing on the break which should suit him, and and United should suit him. It should suit United, really. Him and Garnacho both have that speed. And, uh, yeah, it was funny. With the celebration for the Garnacho goal, uh, which was very obviously mimicking Mohamed Kudu's celebration when West Ham beat United earlier this season, he scored a goal, he went and sat on the advertising hoardings. Uh, Now Garnacho scored a goal, he sat on the hoardings and was joined by Hurlun and Kobe Mainu. And I was watching that, and I was thinking... If that had been Bruno Fernandes scoring that goal, and I don't know Marcus Rashford and Maguire joining him, I would probably be going into full Sarki mode here and going like, "Yeah, hey, well done, lads. You've just you've just scored a deflected goal, and you're sixth in the league. Like maybe settle down a bit, huh? And it's a long way to go before you can be happy with the situation at Man United. But you know what? There was something about it being the three youngsters, Garnacho, Highland, and Mino. Uh, who are three young players who are having to carry a lot more of the burden at that club than you could reasonably expect them to do, who are having to deal with a tremendous amount of pressure, and who just, just briefly seem to be having quite a good time now. Uh, everyone having like a good moment at the same time. Um, I know, I think if he carries on playing like this he has to be in the discussion for england for the, for the squad at least for the Euro. I was not sure southgate's going to do that but like how many very good central midfielders do do england have? Like not that many. Uh, he's looking he's looking absolutely tremendous. Uh, Garnacho we spoke about on the other episode, very exciting Haaland, you know, I like so they're all and of course Haaland starting scoring now so everyone's kind of having a good time and so, so watching the three youngsters so full of promise, like enjoying themselves at a club where times have not always been good recently, I thought that was kind of more sweet than anything else. So, uh, so, so, so good on them. Um, West Ham, six games without a win now. Uh, still seventh in the league somehow, which is great if you're West Ham. Uh, their XG is still pretty stinky uh, <laughs> in the bottom half of the table on the XG. Now... It remains a weird thing with West Ham. Some fans are disgruntled, some are not. There's one thing I've noticed here. If you look at the XG created at home, specifically, only Crystal Palace, Burnley, Nottingham Forest has created less at home this season than West Ham. And their XG against isn't great either. They have the third worst XG difference at home in the league, uh, just above Burnley and Sheffield United. So to translate that from numbers into what fans are seeing, if you are someone who's paying to watch West Ham every week, It's not been a great watch. Like, you're watching the team not create that much and not be particularly solid down the other way, even though the results have been okay. This is not a team that's creating a lot of chances. Now, obviously, Lucas Paqueta being hurt has uh, hurt them. Uh, Kudu's missing some games has hurt them. But there was always likely to be a pretty big downturn in form for West Ham just based on the numbers. I don't think you can continue to be like 6th and 7th or whatever they've been and have one of the worst XG numbers in the league. That just typically isn't what happens. Uh, and and so that's not entirely unexpected uh, for West Ham and interesting to see if they can snap out of it before the mood uh, goes foul. I might be misreading this, but my impression, I have some friends who are West Ham fans, is that there is a lot of respect for what David Moyes have done and and, and listen, West Ham being in the top half of the table is nothing to scoff at, but also very often they're just no fun to watch and and that stuff matters you know and they have some good players who, who could be doing more exciting things and there's a sense that maybe they're not going anywhere very exciting with this man in charge so i don't think it's not going to take that much of a you know consistent downturn in form before that situation could get quite uh, rowdy and toxic very very quickly i don't know how long you can just say well we got rid of him before and, you know, there was that time we wanted to be more exciting, so we hired uh, Manuel Pellegrini, and that was really bad, so we can't do that again. Like, I'm not sure that's a viable way of, of, of thinking, and I'm not sure that's going to implicate everyone all the time. Um, I have in my notes there, I've written Chris Wilder sandwich stuff. Like, I feel I'm late to this party, I feel like all the jokes have already been made. But oh my god, remember when Chris Wilder kind of seemed like a breath of fresh air with his no-nonsense approach to things? I mean, where did that guy go? Because there's there's been some sort of body swap here where he seems to have been replaced by a man who is, rather than no-nonsense, he is all nonsense. It's just nothing but nonsense. This sort of recent pivot to moaning about referees all the time, just also with the kind of self-pity, the exquisite self-pity of Chris Wilder, it's the kind of thing we usually only see from Sean Dyche. Uh, it, it, it's pretty embarrassing, but but I feel like he really peaked when he seemed to be very insulted that one of the match officials had eaten a sandwich in his presence. And just to be clear, Chris Wilder went into the referees, uh, presumably in the referees changing room, to have a whinge and a moan, as he does, uh, and he felt slighted that one of them was eating. I should stress this because if it had been the official going into Sheffield United's dressing room and like eating a sandwich at Wilder, that would have been eccentric behavior. fair enough that would have been weird though I, I kind of hope that happens now uh, when when Sheffield United play like the official comes in with a big sandwich and just stands in front of Wilder eating it slowly. That's not what happened here. So just so you know the Chris Wilder code of respect is clear. Uh, barging into the official's dressing room to have a whinge, that's fine. But if one of those officials has the nerve to not put his food down and listen to the world word of Wilder, well, that is the kind of disrespect you simply cannot stand for. Just amazing behavior from him. Uh, of course, they were duly thumped by Aston Villa, and I am sure they will lose again this weekend because his team is really bad. Now, the transfer window closed. That's also a thing that happened. And... Um, and what a transfer window it was! It was glorious, uh, breathtaking stuff. I was at a live event for a transfer deadline day, which was pretty wild, as you can imagine. I was mostly just on a stage, being asked stuff like, "Is something happening in England, Laris? And I would say, "No, not much." <laughs> Okay, good stuff. I see Enes Unal has gone on loan to Bournemouth. Is that exciting? I would say, no, it's not. (laughs) It's like absolutely incredible scenes. But I did, just for the purposes of this episode, I did have a look through the January transfers in the Premier League, see if we can pick out a couple that are worth talking about. And boy, that was not easy. But Giovanni Reina on loan to Nottingham Forest. I mean, that is an old-school sort of Barclays-era Premier League type of transfer. That is something you can easily see Harry Redknapp doing. Uh, is it a good idea? I think almost certainly not. We were talking about Gio uh, a couple episodes uh, ago I, uh, no, no, with Mr. Carlson. Anyway, maybe that was last episode. No, it wasn't. It was before that. Anyway, I don't think it's a great fit. Uh, in, in terms of the league if you have Giovanni Reina who's obviously technically gifted and we've seen you know the talents there he was great at Dortmund when were was 17 was looking very very exciting and I've seen some of this footage obviously because I, I did spend quite a lot of time re-watching all Dortmund stuff when I was working on the Holland book and you forget how exciting Gio Reina was back in the day and um, now it hasn't really worked for him. He struggled to stay fit. He struggles to establish himself in the team. He wants to play as a number 10. He hasn't been getting to play as a number 10, all this sort of stuff. Is it a great idea if like keeping fit is a problem for him going into, uh, into the Premier League for one thing, but also to possession to a team that doesn't keep a lot of possession and who are fighting uh, a relegation battle in the Premier League. That seems bad to me. Um, it's bad for a couple of reasons of course the Premier League is physically quite tough so if you're struggling to stay fit I don't think that's getting better but the other thing is this is a loan without an option to buy so there's no real investment on the side of Nottingham Forest in Giovanni Reina's development like as a talent who's kind of lost his way it'll probably take him a little bit of time to build himself up and and get into some kind of match groove again and Forest have got no skin in the game here like they just see him as someone who can come in and do some good stuff for them and help them stay up but if he doesn't I mean he's not their player they're just paying a bit of money in wages and then they've got other people they can use. There's no there's no reason for Forrest to sort of go out on a limb for for Reyna and give him playing time and be patient with him and build him up because he's leaving in a couple of months. So so he's gone to an environment where sort of it's not easy being a team that has not that much possession. He's, he's not going to get a lot of help. And, and if he doesn't play well, they'll just be on the bench because they've got no interest in and in, they've got no particular incentive to try to build him up. So I, I think there is a real risk of this not working very well at all. He is very talented. Sometimes talent will out. Maybe and, it, and the upside with this is, if you're a big Giovanni Reina enthusiast, I know we have a fair few American listeners. The upside is playing in England it puts you on like a big stage where everyone watches everything and if you just if you just play decently well score a couple of goals a couple of assists have a couple of good moments in this league for Nottingham Forest then suddenly you're going to have a lot of options in the summer if you're hoping for a permanent move somewhere else it it, it, it is a good place to get attention uh, and he will get minutes uh, you would imagine but it's it's just it's a difficult thing for for him i mean if he if he was struggling to make a mark at Dortmund I don't think it's easier being a sort of creative wide player attacking midfielder for uh, for Nuno's uh, Nottingham Forest than it is uh, being that player for Dortmund. But of course a change of environment can be good, but I, I thought he'd go to, to Spain or Italy or something. I thought that made a lot more sense for him, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, Adam Wharton to Crystal Palace I think is interesting because he's a 19-year-old central midfielder from Blackburn. Moves for something like £18 million. Pounds. Now, I'm not going to claim to have watched a lot of Blackburn or watched them at all this season, but he is very highly rated, and and the numbers suggest that he's a very good passer of the ball who can also put in a, in a tackle, so that seems nice. This also seems like the kind of signing Roy Hodgson absolutely has no time for at all. Now, Hodgson, typically not that keen on youth. Roy Hodgson likes the sort of experienced guys who he knows what he's going to get from. Uh, And if Roy Hodgson is in the middle of a firefight to stay up, what does he want the club to spend £20 million on? Probably not a 19 year old passing midfielder. I think that's absolutely not near the top of Roy Hodgson's wish list. But at the same time, Palace know that Hodgson is not their future, and if they, they ha, if they like this player, presumably they've watched him for quite a long time. They've identified him as a potential, you know, Premier League performer. If you can get him in, now, of course, you you go for it. But it, it, it's an interesting one. That's just probably not what Roy Hodgson wanted under the Christmas tree uh, this uh, this transfer window. Armando Broja going on loan to Fulham. Uh, to, to to guess I guess to pick up the, the Mitrovic legacy of being a slightly beefy, angry man up front with a with a sort of family background from the Balkans, you know, Broja of course, uh, born in Slough, but of Albanian descent, maybe that's good, I don't know, we're kind of clutching at straws here in terms of interesting signings, there weren't a ton of them the Spurs ones were kind of good, we spoke about Timo Werner I like that one, I like a fixer-upper uh, Dragusin is a beefy boy at the back, that's not a bad thing, I mean especially with the frequency with which Romero gets himself suspended or injured. I mean, you're probably going to have to have an able backup for him in some some capacity. Uh, Paratici knows him uh, very well. Paratici, of course, still kind of in football jail. Uh, but he is allowed to do some administrative tasks and is apparently now consulting. So he's playing a part. It was Paratici who brought uh, Dragos into Juventus. So he probably had a hand in that one. Calvin Phillips on loan to West Ham. You excited by that, West Ham fans, or, or, or anyone else? I mean, I guess Ben Johnson turning up in midfield recently would indicate that there is a need for a player there. Uh, Phillips needs to play minutes. Uh, Never really looked like he could adapt to the man, the demands of a Pep Guardiola team. Uh, playing for a slightly more direct sort of David Moyes team might be better for him. We remember from his time at least that he is very good at playing those sort of big diagonal switches. We know that David Moyes wants his team to get forward quickly after regaining possession. So may- maybe that can work. He needs minutes anyway. Probably will still play for England this summer because Southgate loves him. Wild and exciting stuff. Pablo Fornals and Said ben Rama left. I mean, that's the thing that happened uh, after some late admin problems. That ended up happening. Nottingham Forest sold Aurel Mangala, or, or they sent him to Lyon in a pretty crazy deal because it's initially it's a loan with something like a ten million pound loan fee, and then there's a purchase option for another fifteen with like three million in add-ons. So Forest could end up getting almost thirty million from Mangala, uh, who they signed for like ten, and I don't think he's been more than okay. So that's crazy from Lyon's perspective. I don't understand that at all. Uh, But uh, but Nottingham Forest, yeah, good. We we make fun of Forest a lot because of their sort of chaotic goings-on behind the scenes and the owner's son being the sporting director and all that. But this does seem like a pretty decent bit of business for them and it should help them with FFP stuff as well. I don't know. There's not a lot here. Very boring window. Uh, I think clubs are kind of worried about FFP now that Everton actually redocked points and it looks like the Premier League are going to take that stuff seriously. There's also a problem with... I mean, I've been reading a lot in the last month that this and that club needs to sell before they can buy and they cannot sell because one of the results of the Premier League just being in their own sort of sphere financially and you know we hear a lot of woes about this from the other European leagues it's like we, we don't have a top 5 European league anymore we have one and then the rest of them they're like, the Premier League are in there and that's true like we are in a situation where like Forest and, and Crystal Palace and teams like that can spend as much if not more on wages than some of the, like, the teams that are in the Champions League from other, other top European leagues it's crazy But one of the results of that is that these clubs are handing out some pretty wild contracts. Even for like squad players, they're on a lot of money. So when you need to move players on... It's not always very easy, even guys who are on the bench for various teams down the league in in England they'll be on contracts that it's very hard to find someone who can match them and uh, especially if there's no other Premier League clubs that are interested you can't just dump someone in Italy or send them to Spain or, or whatever because the, the clubs in those countries are just going to no, know we can't pay those wages and then the player goes well I'm not going to take a wage cut to move, so I guess you're stuck with me so it's, it's kind of hard to move on squad players there's also there's also just an absence of like dumb money in the Premier League at the moment, because before there was always like Steve Bruce was always out there somewhere, or like Martin O'Neill or Harry Redknapp, one of these guys who, if you have a squad player at a, one of the bigger clubs, like someone will take him. But now, if you look at the sort of mid-table teams in the Premier League, it's it's Brighton, it's Brentford, it's these kind of clever teams who are not just going to pick up anyone just because they've been on the bench for one of the big clubs. Uh, they will look at the cost and they will look at what they've been producing and they'll think, well, no thanks, that's not for us. So it's it's harder for clubs, I think, to shift dead weight uh, from the Premier League than it has been for a long time. Um, the Saudis aren't really throwing money at everyone anymore. China, that kind of stopped happening. MLS isn't really... I mean, you, you, it's hard to dump squad players. And, and when you then have FFP issues and you're stuck with these contracts and you can't sell anyone, then there's just not a lot of movement in the market, I think. I think that's something we saw um, this uh, January. Uh, in the summer, I get you have players leaving because t- contracts expire and you have some free agents out there, and maybe that'll just trigger some more movement, I would expect. But yeah, real boring January, not much happened. Um, the betting preview for the weekend is up already, I think, ahead of time this week. At least I think it's up Um it has certainly been submitted. It's been written and submitted, uh, and and one of the things I like this weekend is Luton. That Lut, it's very weird. Luton are favourites to win a game, which we've hardly ever seen. Uh, but but they're playing Sheffield United, so they should be favourites. Uh, they've lost just one in their last nine. And, and the thing about Luton that I find so impressive, so they suffered two very heavy defeats in the start of the season. They, they were spanked by both Brighton and Chelsea, and we were all thinking, uh-oh, this, this, this could be bad for Luton. But since then, they've played 25 games in all competitions, and out of those 25, they've only lost by more than one goal twice. Right? Two games out of twenty five they've lost by more than one goal. So even in the games they've ended up losing, they've almost always stayed competitive. They've not been smashed. Whereas of course Sheffield United, very, very different story. They also have a very weak squad. All the things we've said about Luton's like, oh, on paper they shouldn't be there, small budget, yeah, all those things are true for Sheffield United, but they've gotten nowhere near the coherence and the organization that Luton have been able to to use to compensate. And Sheffield and United on the road in particular have been disgraceful. I mean, they've lost, they have played 11 games away. They've yet to win. No wins, two draws, and nine defeats. That's two points from 11 games away from home. Not good. So, so given how tough Luton have been at home, you know, no one's really had an easy time at Kenilworth Road this season. I really don't think, and I, again, do we think they're going to be complacent? No. I, I, I think Luton have struggled. They've had to, you know, fight tooth and nail to to stay in games, and I don't think they're going to relax at all just because of Sheffield United they're playing against. I think they're going to see this as a great opportunity to to play more of their own game and uh, and show what they can do. So I absolutely I, I, I like Luton to win this weekend. It is on the boosted treble. You can grab it as a single at a price of one seventy five as well. I think that is perfectly backable. Uh, this weekend I quite quite like that so I was like that's the I thought about doing a whole episode just looking at the transfer window and what's happened and then I looked at what's happened in the transfer window I thought no that is not possible <laughs> you can't do it because just nothing happened uh but then last weekend yeah a lot of stuff went on so I'm filling some time here so yeah I thought that was only probably only the one episode this uh this week uh, but uh, we'll be back next week with more stuff Maybe we'll bring Peter back as well. We'll see how that goes. Maybe more guests. I haven't decided. That's how we do this pod. We kind of make it up as we go along. That is how I like it. And that is how it will continue. Uh, bye.